but I now spend a lot more of my time trying to actually use academic research almost as R&D for products. And the products are articles and books and training programs and things that actually make a difference in people's lives. And that's sort of how I've made that kind of career transition. I always kind of knew I wanted to do it, but I had to kind of do the first step before I was able to do it. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. This is Scott Anthony Barlow, and you are listening to Happen to Your Career, the show that helps you figure out what work fits you by exploring other stories. We get to bring on experts like Jamie Masters, who helps entrepreneurs focus their money and their strengths to create an amazing life where they build their net worth. Or people who have amazing stories like Catherine Minshew, who took her struggle during her job search and created the popular career discovery platform, The Muse. These are people just like you, only they've gone from where they are to what they really want to be doing. And they're people just like our next guest, Andy Malinsky. At this point in my career, I'm a professor. I teach for parts of the year students, undergraduates and graduate students, uh, MBA students. I increasingly, over the past five to seven years, have started to do a lot of consulting and executive education and keynote speaking. I also do a lot of writing a lot of non-academic writing. I do some academic writing, but I do a lot now of non-academic writing. In other words, writing for general audiences. I write for Inc.com, Psychology Today, Harvard Business Review, LinkedIn, and then I've written a couple of books. I pick my kid at school a lot, so I suppose I have a part-time bus driving job. (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) I'm right there with you. I didn't have that on my resume, but I'm going to add it. That's one of the things I absolutely love is to be able to do that exact thing. So right. Part-time bus driver, done. <laughs> I coach my son's soccer team. I guess lots of things. You know, I do a lot of mentoring and coaching and so on and so forth. So it's kind of a grab bag of things, but that's evolved over time. This was a pretty fun conversation with Andy and we got to dive pretty deep into the five psychological roadblocks that keep you in your comfort zone because all of us know that Really, your your growth happens when you're outside your comfort zone, and these roadblocks have a tendency to stunt your experiential growth as a human being, and to be able to surpass that, you need to know what they are. And then we talk about how to distinguish between which of your goals are worth following through the discomfort. This is a challenge in itself, and we even go into steps to get yourself out of your comfort zone to achieve those very same goals. Totally burned out from working a typical nine to five job, just sitting at the desk, drudgery. This is Matt. Like a whole bunch of other people, he got really burned out on his job. Not only on a mental level, but also like an emotional level, just wearing me out. Listen for Matt's story later on to learn how he figured out what business to start that truly fit him. But yeah, the fear was definitely there, but you just have to keep going, right? You have to act in the face of fear.
So I guess there are probably two different phases. Like the first phase is how did I become interested in organizational behavior and psychology? That would be phase number one. And then phase number two, I guess, is, you know, how's my career developed since then? So the first one, I majored in international relations in college, which at the time when I went to college, that was sort of like the thing that you major in when you don't know what you want to major in, essentially. I know that major. (laughs) (laughs) So I basically majored in that. I knew I was interested in international things. I always liked languages and I just thought it was cool, frankly, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went abroad my junior year to Spain and that was way outside my comfort zone to do. I was terrified, I have to say. This was pre-internet. I had never been anywhere. I'd never been out of the country. I'd never seen really pictures of out of the country. In those days, it was a much bigger deal, I think. And it was scary experience to do, but once I got over the threshold, it was a pretty amazing experience, I have to say. It was eye-opening to me, just like that there was this other world over there, and you know they were getting along fine, and they spoke this different language, and they did all this cool stuff. I could try to learn the language. It was just so fascinating to me. I became very interested in sort of cross-cultural communication. I then came back to college, and after college, I went to graduate school right away, actually. I did a master's program in international business. It was a two-year master's program. And one year in, I realized to myself two things. First of all, I wanted to do more international stuff. And second of all, I didn't know anything about business. (laughs) So I figured, hmm, maybe I could try to do something about that. So I took leave of absence between the two years of that master's program. And I went to France and I worked for a French consulting company and I learned French and I had another sort of foreign experience. It was fantastic. I loved it. And it was there that I became so interested in psychology and organizational behavior and also cross-cultural communication. I kept a little diary at work. Like my actual job was like super boring. I think it was customer satisfaction surveys for industrial companies in Europe. That does sound riveting. Massively boring. However, it was just a year thing and it was an opportunity to go abroad. And I kept this little diary open on my computer. And this was in the days of like early computers, like a boxy looking Mac SE computer. And I had this diary open of just stuff I was observing in the office, frankly, like office people. I was so interested in it. And so when I came back, it was Columbia University in New York City. When I came back there at the time, I was like trying to figure out like, what is this? Like it was basically social psychology and organizational behavior, but I didn't know what those things were. I ultimately found out what they were. I started taking some courses in them. I got inspired and thought to myself, maybe I want to try a PhD in this and like actually do this. And so eventually I went to get a PhD and I got a PhD in organizational behavior and psychology. And I loved it. I really loved it. I learned how to research. I learned the field and so on and so forth. My PhD dissertation was actually about Russian immigrants learning to interview and network for jobs. These are people who are desperate to get jobs because they didn't have much funding. You know, you only have like about 20 months of funding or something like that for themselves and their families. And they had to learn how to switch their cultural behaviors, but they really struggled with it. And that's what my dissertation was about. Essentially acting outside your cultural comfort zone in a way. Interesting. And not just because I also have 140-page-ish Google Doc that served as a diary for my days in HR, but also interesting because... The things that, yeah, that's not what I thought you were going to say in the first place. But yes, we might be able to have a whole separate conversation about that. But it is really interesting to me in terms of your fascination with the cross-cultural piece, too, because I think there's so much embedded in that 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 actually is transcends beyond cross-cultural. 
Yeah, there's no question. And so for my first seven or eight years of my job as a professor, the deal with if you're a professor, you know, major research university where I was, I was at the University of Southern California, you know, USC in LA. And then I was also now at Brandeis University in Boston, you know, both pretty major research universities. The deal there is that you need to write articles, academic articles, become well-known around the country and the world for your area of expertise and publish enough and of enough quality that your peers decide that you're worthy of tenure, which is a job for life. And that was my narrow focus for I don't know how many years, eight years, nine years, whatever it was, exclusively doing that. I always knew, though, see, I didn't come into this PhD sort of having like studied in college and worked in labs in college or anything like that. I came to it from sort of the real world experience. And so I always knew I wanted to kind of circle back and speak to just regular people and make an impact in the world. But for quite a while, I had to sort of burrow down and do the true sort of full on academic thing. I did get tenure maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years ago or so maybe longer, actually, maybe more time since then has passed. And then from that point, and this is your career shift, sort of, I didn't make a massive career shift, but I definitely pivoted. And it was a pivot that I sort of anticipated, because once you have tenure, you essentially have a job for life, and you can start to be very independent in terms of what you do. And I, of course, continue doing academic research, and I still do, but I now spend a lot more of my time, well, since before I spent zero of my time before, but a lot more of my time trying to actually use academic research almost as R&D for products. And the products are articles and books and training programs and things that actually make a difference in people's lives. And that's sort of how I've made that kind of career transition. I always kind of knew I wanted to do it, but I had to kind of do the first step before I was able to do it. Okay. So I'm super curious about that. What's an example of a way that you were able to use those as R&D? Well, I mean, R&D, I use that term loosely. It's just the idea that I'm a columnist, Inc.com, for example, and I also have written, I don't know, like 50 articles at Harvard Business Review. Like I know the field of organizational behavior. I know social psychology. I don't know everything about it, but I have very good grounding in it. So when I try to think of something in terms of something to write that I sort of get inspired by in the real world, I have a pretty sort of easy way in my mind, at least, of understanding it from sort of an academic perspective. And then I can translate that into sort of regular person speak so that it's really understandable and digestible and so on. But I've got the good academic base. And so in a way, that's R&D. Very specifically, though, I have even more literally R&D, like my new book, Reach, that will talk about much of the research in that book is research that I actually did personally, right? So there's some that's an absolute like direct translation of my research. And then there's some where I just kind of understand the field, understand a way of thinking, sort of an academic scholarly way of thinking, which I think is good in a way because it really gives you, you know, precision and validity in some ways. But the bad thing about academics or the challenging thing about academics is oftentimes esoteric and jargon-filled and kind of limited in scope. So if you can sort of leverage the positive parts of academics and combine them with sort of an eye and an orientation towards the real world, I think it's actually a benefit. So before we hit the record button, a little bit behind the scenes here, I was describing to you that we have a lot of people that reach out that either have books or whatever else along those lines or publicists reach out or anything along those lines. And originally, we became interested in you because of that book. And we're like, hey, we've got to have this guy on. We've got to have a conversation with Andy. Because part of the reason is I read through the book is because you do a phenomenal job of taking all of the research pieces 
and combining that together with very palatable ways to understand and be relevant for nearly anybody. So I particularly appreciated that. And I think that's part of what you're saying as well. I appreciate that because that's what I always try to do. I try to make things that are, you know, I'm a fairly simple guy. I like to understand things really clearly. And that, like, if I pride myself on anything, it's the ability to take complex topics and make them simple, not simplistic. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Now, first of all, I want to dive back here just because I'm way curious. What part of France were you in? I lived in Paris. You did live in Paris. Okay. My family and I, we just spent a month in Paris living over there just because we had never lived over there and really wanted to go. So what years were you there? I was there in the early 90s. So, I mean, I've traveled back and forth quite a bit, less so now with kids, but early 90s is when I lived there. Very cool. And you're right, going to another country or going someplace in overseas in any place else that out is outside your comfort zone. It's kind of a different ball game at this point. And we had Google Maps and we could find our ways around and Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb. Yeah. It's a bit of a different ball game in that way, certainly. But absolutely loved Paris. That's so interesting that you were over there too. We were thrilled to pieces and it was certainly outside our comfort zone as a family because we ended up taking our kids for that month-long period of time. Then we also spent some time in Portugal as well. But oh my goodness, talk about in, intentionally getting yourself outside of your comfort zone, which is what I hope to delve into here a little bit as well, which kind of brings us to our next topic. I love that you have, well, two pieces here. One, I think that there have been different points of your life as observed that you have been able to successfully get yourself well outside of, of your comfort zone, those comfortable areas for you. And clearly those overseas trips are one of them. And then the other thing I really like about that too, is you've been intentional about looking back and observing where that was the case. And then also combining a lot of those observations together with what you're seeing in terms of research. And then again, going back to what we talked about earlier, making it palatable. That's what I'd love to do is be able to go into, first of all, why is it so flipping hard for most of us to get outside of our comfort zones? <laughs> so I should say a word just quickly about who I talk with for this book, because I did combine research and my own insights and so on. But I also talked to people from all sorts of you know walks of life and professions, managers, executives, doctors, teachers, rabbis, priests, stay-at-home moms trying to get back into the workforce, yeah. a goat farmer, I mean, all sorts of people. I found that across all these stories, examples, people, it kind of boiled down to five, I call them psychological roadblocks. And, you know, you're not going to experience every one of these in every situation, but I kept hearing these time and time again. And so I can just quickly tick them off, see if they resonate with the audience, our listeners. So, and I should also say that when we're talking about getting outside your comfort zone, I like to get super specific and kind of like zero in on specific situations, like walking into that networking situation that you know you need to do to sort of enter a new job or career opportunity, but it's terrifying for you, or making that cold call or participating at that meeting or speaking up in public or delivering bad news, whatever it might be. But I like to zone in on kind of specific moments. So the first challenge is what I call authenticity. The idea that stepping outside my comfort zone in this situation, this doesn't feel like me. Quite literally, it probably isn't because you're stepping outside your comfort zone. But that's really hard. Just an example that comes to mind is there are many examples, but just pops in my head right now as I interviewed a bunch of young entrepreneurs 
who had product ideas and they wanted to start a business. But to do that, they had to do lots of stuff that's outside their comfort zone, like pitch their idea to venture capitalists who are much older, much more experienced, sort of in a Shark Tank style situation. And they had to like put on their grown up voice or put on suit and tie or whatever it might be. And they just felt like total posers and wannabes, like standing up there completely inauthentic. I think of my own experience, stepping into a classroom for the first time. So I told you a little bit about my story. You don't learn to teach, interestingly, when you get a PhD. <laughs> like, I mean, you do a little bit. That's a slight <laughs> exaggeration, but it's not, not, to be honest, it's much of an exaggeration. Not, not that far off. <laughs> no, you learn to do research. Yes. So I remember stepping into a classroom at the University of Southern California the very first day. I remember it very, very well. And this is a long time ago. I remember I felt like I opened that door. I was like, who am I to be doing this? Like, this is preposterous. And someone said like, hello, professor. And I like looked behind me, assuming that they were talking to someone else. You know, like, it's not me. So authenticity is a challenge. Another challenge is what I call likability. The worry that people won't like this version of me. Maybe I won't like this version of me, but people won't like this version of me, might even hate this version of me if I doing that's outside my comfort zone, whether it's, you know, I don't know, being more assertive than I'm used to or that I think they expect me to be or delivering bad news or whatever it might be. So likability challenge is a second one. You know, if I have to network people, God, people think I'm such a sleazy jerk for trying to kind of like beg and ask them a favor or something competence is a third challenge. You got authenticity, likability, competence, you know, the fear that you'll look like a fool if you give that public speech and not only look like a fool, but feel like a fool that you're actually not that good at this and you really feel it. Sometimes I like to think about the authenticity challenge and the competence challenge kind of combo to create what some people call the imposter syndrome. Yes. Feeling like an imposter. A fourth one is resentment. And logically, you know, you need to adapt perhaps, but psychologically you're resentful, you're annoyed, you're frustrated. Like, why can't my qualifications count? Why do I have to schmooze and make small talk and go play golf with these people? Why can't I just do good work? You know, a lot of introverts actually who I've spoken to around this book have sort of resonated with that idea that like sort of deep resentment of having to kind of accommodate to the extroverted world of work in which we really live. But there are other examples, too. And then the final one is morality. And, you know, there are not as many examples of this, but I certainly found a bunch. The idea that when acting outside my comfort zone in this situation, it just feels wrong. It feels wrong to me for whatever reason. But it's sort of like it bumps up against my, my own moral compass. So, again, you don't necessarily feel authenticity, likability, competence, resentment, and morality challenges every time you do something or consider doing something. But, frankly, any one of these can make it hard to step outside your comfort zone. So here's the question I had in reading through and thinking about that piece. Because many people might hear some of those things, and I think there's a couple of different ways that you can take it, but I'm curious how you reconcile or tease apart what is going to be very good growth that is simply uncomfortable for you, or I guess the opposite side of that is potentially those things that are not ever going to be authentic to you or that probably don't center around any of your more natural strengths or whatever else that aren't going to fall into your competence areas ever because of the way that you're wired. How do you tease those pieces out and think about that in that way? So in terms of the first piece, what I often suggest people do, and I do this myself too, is I imagine to myself in a situation 
If I could erase with my magic wand the anxiety and fear I face in a situation that I'm considering outside my comfort zone, if I could just temporarily as a thought exercise, would this be something that I would like to be able to do? It's an interesting thought exercise, actually. I'd encourage people to try it. And if you can do that exercise, and if you come to the conclusion that, you know what, starting a small company is something I really want to do. I've always wanted to do that. And it terrifies the heck out of me. But I have to admit, I've always wanted to do it. Then I think it's very valuable and worth it to try to apply some of the tools that I talk about in the book to try to step outside your comfort zone in sort of like, and I think there are some really solid tools you can use to try to give yourself a leg up. If the answer to that question is, no, not really, you know, even if I could erase the anxiety and fear, it's not really something I care so much about, or it's not my thing particularly anyways. Like, let's say you're afraid of sales. If you say, if you could erase the anxiety, erase the worry and say, you know what, I'm just not that interested in doing it, Frank. What I'd prefer to, I just don't want to do it. Then that's a fine conclusion. But I don't think that should be a rationalization for not starting a business, let's say. I think that should then bring you to the point that you need to partner with someone who's good at sales, right? I mean, you can outsource that piece. So you don't want to use it as a justification for not doing something, but it might legitimately be something that you really actually don't care about improving at. So that's what I recommend for that piece. maybe like three years, was just focused on trying to create this online business. Kept failing, kept changing approaches, kept pivoting, never truly committing to one thing. And little did I ask, like, hey, do you even want an online business? Remember Matt from earlier? He made some changes on his own, but failed to ask the really important questions. Yeah, I'll be totally honest, it was horrible, right? It was like waking up every day and wondering like, okay, what am I gonna do today? And what are my goals? It's basically waking up and kind of feeling lost and analyzing over and over again and coming to the same answers. Making a bunch of pivots wasn't all bad for him, though. The light in that is I gained different skills, especially people skills throughout the whole time. We coached Matt to help him realize what his strengths were and how to take actions based on those. Those tests that you had me go through were fantastic in terms of like, okay, yeah, here are my strengths. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That really true. And then that kind of just gives you, again, that confidence boost to take action, to do something. Congratulations, Matt, on building a business and a life that you love. If you also want to figure out what work fits you and find that fulfilling career that gets you up in the morning, lights you up, gives you purpose, well, find out how coaching can help you step-by-step. Go over to happentoyourcareer.com and click on coaching to apply. Or you can text my coach. that's M-Y, coach, to 44222. Pause right now and we'll send over the application. The more that you can double down on you know, your health and your wellness, the better. That will go back to effectiveness and efficiency of how you run your business. Really interested in helping people think about how to dovetail, or maybe a better way to say it would be how to separate out which are going to be good directions for me that are uncomfortable and I need to experience growth in versus those that are also uncomfortable that really don't align with either who I actually am or the direction that I want to go or anything else. And I really like your suggestion of, hey, I'm going to call it the outcome that you're wanting. And if that's something you're really actually legitimately interested in doing, and you're thinking about if you have that or if you're without that, and you come to the conclusion that it's something that you want then it is worth it to go down the path through that discomfort. And I should also say 
that's sort of well stated. I like that. The other piece here is that I don't think everyone should be like stretching outside their comfort zone in every situation at every point in their life. It's not like, you know, full throttle, let's let go. You know, I think that's unrealistic and unwise and so on. I like to think about it in terms of like, you know, portfolios, like stock portfolios or something as an analogy. Like we all have portfolios of situations in our lives. Some are outside our comfort zones, some are inside our comfort zones, some are outside our comfort zones, but would like to actually work on or whatever. Like there's a portfolio of of various sort of places that situations are for us. And maybe would like to be able to move a few, you know, would like to actually be able to try some stuff outside our comfort zone. Those portfolios change over time, right? In terms of our life experience, in terms of our maturity. Yeah whatever. I think my life has changed after having kids big time as being a parent and so on. But I don't think it's unrealistic to think that there will be some situations right in your comfort zone and that's where you want them to be. You know what I mean? I think the problem is where you have certain ambitions, legitimate ambitions, something that you would really like to be able to do, but your fear and anxiety is holding you back. That's where I think this stuff is super relevant. I feel like that is a great opportunity for, I don't know, some kind of basic graph or something. I don't recall. Maybe you already had one in your book and I just missed it. But I feel like there's a very simple graph in terms of this is the areas you focus on for intentional discomfort. These are the areas that you don't even worry about because it's outside of what you want. No, I don't think I had that graph, but you know, I should we, mock it up. We can create that. We'll, <laughs> exactly. we'll make it happen. Very good. I love it. I love frameworks to think about making decisions. So that's ultimately what I'm hoping people will take away as they listen to this is I think you just described a framework for being able to say, okay, going out there and just experiencing tons and tons of discomfort that's probably not necessarily the right way to go. You're going to experience some growth that way, but a much better way to look at it would be to do exactly what you just described, where I interpreted that as, hey, evaluate what is the outcome and is discomfort holding you back from those areas? And then if so, those are the places where you may intentionally want to experience it. Exactly. So on that note, here's some areas where I know that I need to get better at public speaking, or I need to be able to move through the discomfort of sales, or I need to be able to, well, I don't know, insert your thing here. But how then do I actually do that? What are some ways that I can use to be able to do that? And you love to talk in terms of specifics, and I very much appreciate that. So maybe we can use some examples that we have pop up all the time, or some people that you've talked to over the time. How can I actually do those things? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it'd be like it was like an awful book and an awful sort of set of ideas if I stopped at the problem. <laughs> but frankly, like a lot of books that you read, they don't literally stop at the problem, but they're heavy on the problem, light on the solutions. Yeah. I did not want to do that. So here's what I found in terms of people who were able to step successfully outside their comfort zone. Sort of what do they all have in common? The first thing they had in common was conviction. And that's sort of like a deep sense of purpose, sort of like what's in it for you? Why is it worth fighting through discomfort, addressing discomfort, stepping into this situation that is actually really hard for you? You know, it's sort of that drive or sense of purpose to take action despite discomfort. I found that people's sources of conviction tended to be in one of two buckets. One was professional, you know, that I've always wanted to be a small business owner. And yes, there are aspects of it that are really hard, but this is something I've always wanted to do, or I've always wanted to be that manager. I've always wanted to be a leader. 
insert whatever you've always wanted to be or what you really deeply care about wanting to do. And that would be a professional source of conviction. Sometimes it's very personal. You know, sometimes it's about making a difference in the world or helping certain people. Or frankly, for me, I have to say one of my biggest sources of conviction is my role as a dad, as a parent. Like I have a 10 and a 12 year old and I'm often trying to sort of smartly, hopefully coax them outside their comfort zones. And if I'm asking them to be brave and then I myself am afraid to do certain things and I'm not able to get the courage to do it, I don't know. It's not the kind of dad or role model that I want to be. So, you know, wherever your source of conviction comes from, I think it's important to identify it and embrace it. So that's the first tool. I want to ask you about that for just a second. I find myself using as a crutch very regularly. So first of all, my oldest is nine and you can let me know what's coming over the next couple of years. But one of the, we've got this set of family rules and one of which is try new things and the real heart of essentially getting outside your comfort zone on a regular basis. And I find myself taking actions in some cases that I probably wouldn't have taken otherwise, except to fulfill what I want to be as a role model for my kids. Like otherwise I probably would, I, I just wouldn't. So I'm curious how much you saw those types of things, not necessarily for kids, but those types of things where you're stepping into or you want to be that role or you've got that conviction behind that. I'm curious how else that showed up besides just parenting too. I think the parenting piece is sort of like a complementary piece. I think that there's got to be something. It's not sort of like, oh, I'm going to go jump off that cliff, even though I really don't want to just to show up your kids. For some people, that's actually meaningful. It depends if your kids is struggling in certain ways, take stepping into a situation, whatever. It gets complicated. But the family side, let's say, that would sort of be an extra added boost. I found it really had to do in these, you know, again, I interviewed people about professional situations mostly. So it really had to do with some form of like professional slash personal ambition. This is just something that I have always wanted to do. I know this will make me feel good about myself. This will enable me to help others. This is my calling. I mean, that's rare, but that happens for sure. I heard some examples that this is my calling. But some source of conviction, I mean, because if you don't have that source of conviction, it is very hard to fight through your comfort zone because you don't really have much of a sense of purpose. Did you see people intentionally using those sources of conviction to create stakes for themselves? Like to pressure themselves, you mean? Yeah. And I almost think about like going back to the parent example, I find myself in some cases intentionally setting myself up to, how do I describe it? What would be a good recent example? Okay. So- This might sound a little bit odd, but I take my kids every Saturday and we go down to a place I work out at and it's very much strength training plus parkour, which sounds like a near odd combination to probably the average person. But there are some things that parkour can be fairly acrobatic, I guess. So there are some things that I'm scared to death to do, quite frankly. So if I have my kids as an audience some degree, then I feel that extra pressure and that extra motivation to do some of those things and to try some of those things with them watching. And I guess that's your example, but... No, it's an interesting example. A crutch almost implies that there's a pejorative sense to that. I don't see that as a bad thing necessarily, as long as it's not like exposing them to something they shouldn't be... (laughs) something. But it doesn't seem that way. It seems to me like it could be part of your source of conviction or about to talk about next, which is customization. Well, let's go down that road. So customization, I have to tell you, this was the most surprising, interesting, impactful, powerful aspect of what I found, this idea of customization. 
The idea here is that time and time again, and it was one of those things where once you start to see it, you see it everywhere. And the idea basically is that, you know, it's sort of like buying a pair of pants. Very few people, well, some people do, I guess, buy a pair of pants off the shelf and just kind of wear them and they're good to go. Usually many of us have to have them sort of shortened here or lengthened there or tweaked here, whatever it is, in a minor way, but so that it fits us better. So that's an analogy to say that you can take a situation, even one that you're uncomfortable with, no matter what it is really, and you can find a way to put your own personal spin or twist on it to make it just a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more authentic even. And there were so many interesting ways that I found people customize their situations through all sorts of things, body language, timing, literal, actual language, staging a context, bringing props. So for example, you know, let's talk about an example and we can sort of think about it spontaneously. What's an example some of your listeners might be afraid of doing? Well, I think that two things pop into mind. One, the story of, was it Jane? It might've been Jane. That is relevant, I think, in one way. But a lot of people do mention sales. They have some sales aspect of their role. And I start to talk to them more and more, or our team talks to them. Then we start to tease out like what is actually the sales piece of it and what are some of the value subsets and what are some of the other things. But ultimately, they're focused on the sales and the discomfort and pressures that go along with that thing. So- Yeah. So sales and sales could be about selling a product. It could also be about selling yourself in a networking context. You know, you hear a lot of people uncomfortable with that. So, you know, there are lots of things that you can do to try to sort of tweak it to make it your own in a literal sales context. You know, it it might be that there's certain language that feels right for you. It's really critical for you to not only believe in the product or service that you're selling, but actually be a client yourself and to legitimately use it and love it. And maybe there's certain language that you end up using that are touchstones for you that sort of remind you of how this is actually something that you love or doing or that you respect or whatever it is, so that there's some sort of personal connection to it. It may be sales. Maybe it's important for you to bring someone with you. Maybe you feel more relaxed when you're with someone, or maybe that other person is able to do a piece of the sale and you do another piece of the sale. Maybe, you know, good cop, bad cop. Maybe you're the opener and they're the closer. Maybe there's a prop that you like to bring. For years, I was afraid of public speaking for years. Now, not so much anymore. I actually really like public speaking, but been at it for about 20 years. And early on, it was terrifying for me. I used to bring a prop, like a prop in theater, and my prop was a ring. And that ring was a special ring with a stone in it that my great uncle had found in the beaches of the South Pacific in World War II. And it was a tiger's eye stone. And he had made that stone into a ring when he came back from the war. And he wore it for many, many, many years. And I always admired it. And I ultimately inherited it in a sense. And I used to wear it and it used to represent courage to me because that's what he had to do to get that stone in the ring. And I think to myself, like I'm stepping into this situation where I need courage. And, you know, it wasn't like a magical wand, but it actually gave me a little boost. It was secret. It was private. Now, of course, all of you now know about it, but I used to wear that. This is not in the sales realm, but I had already heard a great example of this the other day from a woman who's very uncomfortable in social situations. She wants to make small talk. She wants to schmooze. She wants to get to know people. And she goes to these sort of social gatherings and she sits in the corner, doesn't say anything. And Turns out that she's actually very interested in photography and just as as an aside, and she had this epiphany to bring a selfie stick 
to social get-togethers. And so she takes that out of her purse and she starts to put her iPhone or whatever on the selfie stick. And then all of a sudden people come over like, oh, what's that? That's cool. That's awesome. Oh, can we try that? And then all of a sudden she's gone from wallflower to someone who's like absolutely engaged in the conversation, meeting people, taking photos, getting their emails so that she can send them the photos, having a purpose in the situation and so on, all through that single prop. We could go on and on and on, but the point is that there are a myriad of ways that you can sort of thoughtfully and consciously tweak a situation to make it just that little bit more comfortable for you, which makes it easier to step outside your comfort zone. That's fantastic for a couple of different reasons, but I see so many people and I've fallen into this trap too, that think that we have to do something that is outside our comfort zone in a particular way. And very often, I mean, we do lots of coaching with clients and helping them move past their comfort zones or move into their discomfort zones and intentionally so. And a lot of times it, I didn't realize it, but what we are doing is helping them customize and then move past that barrier of having to thinking we have to do it in a certain particular way. I find the exact same thing. And that's what's so interesting. It's almost as if like, again, I guess I think in terms of images a lot <laughs> and the image that yeah, pops yeah. head is the image mm -hmm. of an archery target. And it's as if like there's this idea that you have to hit the dead on bullseye. But the reality is that actually that ring and the ring outside of it and maybe even the ring outside of it is the zone of acceptability in some way. Right. And you yeah. just need to find a spot in there that fits for you. I love it. That is fantastic. But one last question, something that I wanted to ask you too. So we talked about authenticity a little bit earlier, and I think people really struggle particularly with that one, at least the people that are listening to this show, because often their work or pieces about their work feel very, very inauthentic. And I'm super curious as to what advice do you have for them, whether or not they should how they should think about keeping going in that environment or maybe taking some of these pieces and customizing it versus getting out and moving to a new thing. Yeah, no, I think I get what you're saying. And it's a real question a lot of people have. In fact, before we're on today, you were mentioning something about your audience. And I said, oh my gosh, I had a conversation with someone last night about yeah, this. Yeah. Like, I'm often talking to people about this exact issue, changing careers. It's a really hard question, I think, to answer in the abstract. I think, however, Sometimes there are mistakes people make in thinking about it in terms of authenticity, for example. Like, do you have more power and control than you think you do? Are there ways that you can tweak or adjust or craft your role, either sort of on your own or by asking if you have a supervisor to perhaps introduce other elements into your role that might fit better and be more authentic and so on? Sometimes people desperately want to be able to express a part of themselves that they feel that they need to suppress at work. And sometimes having an outlet for that outside of work is often quite useful in two ways. You know, number one, it could sort of fulfill that need in a way, and maybe it sort of reduces the, the anger that you might have around your work. And you might potentially discover aspects of your work that you don't mind or that you actually like once you're able to express that sort of previously unexpressed piece of yourself outside of work. You know, nowadays in sort of the gig economy, I think a lot of people are using having these like side hustle type of things where they can do something that's more authentic to themselves. And if they do it outside of work, maybe it's a bridge to potentially switching careers, starting small, but then, you know, potentially bridging out. Yep. So that's another 
possible thing. But it's really hard to like, you know, there are some environments that are just plain toxic, right? (laughs) Or just not a good fit. And I wouldn't want to give the advice to people to tell them that it's your mistake. You're not figuring out a way to customize right, or you're not figuring out a way to make it work in there, or you're justifying it, you know, and so on and so forth. When in fact, it's truly a toxic environment. I think one hint about that, though, is that remember, from a statistical standpoint, you're an N of one, right? Any individual person, N of one person. If you're trying to make judgments about the toxicity or of a, of a culture, it's probably useful to get some other perspectives. And if you're starting to see that lots of other people agree with you in terms of what you're talking about, about how it's stifling, about how it's sort of making me feel inauthentic and so on and so forth, then you're starting to get a pretty valid view sort of of that unbiased or less biased view of the culture. That might give you more motivation to say to yourself, you know what? this isn't for me. So I guess those are some sort of general sort of, I guess, touch points in terms of thinking about it. But again, it's a very, very sort of personal situation and story, I think, that everyone has. It is. And there's not one size fits all progression to be able to move through that problem that many people face. I love the couple of approaches that you had just mentioned, particularly the last one in pulling in more data points too, so that you can can start to gather, hey, is this a me thing or is this this what I'm perceiving it to be that it's a everybody thing? Exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, this is absolutely fantastic. And by the way, I would highly recommend the book. We haven't even talked about the name necessarily, but it's called Reach, a new strategy to help you step outside your comfort zone, rise to the challenge and build confidence, but would absolutely recommend it. I enjoyed it. And it's the reason we wanted to have you on the show in the first place, but I very much appreciate you taking the time and making the time. And by the way, how can people that want to get the book or want to learn more about you and your work, how can they do those things? Sure. And I love to hear from people. So I really encourage you to connect. I think the very best way is via my website, which is www.andymolinsky.com, which is spelled A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And there are all sorts of links to my social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. I've got tons of articles that I've written and resources and quizzes and all sorts of fun stuff to kind of dig into. So I'd love to connect with you. So please visit me there. Hey, really hope you enjoyed that. If you're ready to create and live a life that is unapologetically you, I want you to check out our ultimate guide to using your strengths to get hired. Find your signature strengths to be able to do what you love, what you're good at, and bring value to your clients, your customers, your organization, and everybody else. And we teach you how to be able to leverage that too. So all you have to do for that is you can pause right now and text my strengths, that's M-Y, strengths, plural, to 44222. Or you can go over to happentoyourcareer.com and click on resources and find the strengths guide. I think you're going to love it. We've got even more in store for you coming up next week on Happen to Your Career. Take a listen. Eventually, I would start to feel like either a sense of boredom or just that I wasn't being challenged as much, or I would just become interested in something else and want to go explore that. Um, And I viewed this as a bad thing for most of my life and worried what was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Like, why can't I stick with anything? Am I afraid of commitment? Like, what is going on? Do I not have like, you know, that one true calling we're all supposed to have? All right. All that and plenty more 
next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Until then, I am out. Adios.